it's good to be here tonight, today. Now, you invited them to church, now I'm telling them it's tonight. Hallelujah. God does make a difference in our lives, and I'm glad that even on a Christmas season time that God is here. He's not a stranger. He wasn't a stranger when he came to Bethlehem. We may use that term, but he was not a stranger when he came to Bethlehem. He had created that, that place, that location, everything about it. He knew it, he knew it exquisitely, and yet he came there for us, and I'm thankful. Hallelujah. So I tell you today, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. If I was in the world, I would tell you happy holidays. But I'm not in the world. So I'll tell you Merry Christmas. I could tell you season's greetings, but that phrase would be appropriate even at Easter. I could tell you happy Easter, and that would be a season's greetings. But today I'll offer you season's greetings with the phrase Merry Christmas. God bless you. You may be seated. I would like to preach about God's gifts to us today, the gifts of seasons. Seasons come and go in everyone's life. None of us are exempt. All of us are included in, the, in seasons of life. Sister Morgan, as she was leading us in worship tonight, today, she made a statement. She said that life doesn't always go just as we've planned. And I heard some amens when she said that because it's true. Life does not always go as planned. Sometimes we have to roll with the punches. Sometimes we kick against what life brings to us. But we trust God to make a difference. But in the beginning, in the beginning, on the fourth day, God created lights in the firmament of the heavens for various reasons. One of those reasons was seasons. According to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, the concept and the reality of seasons has endured ever since. We still have seasons. What he started then, he still is continuing in our world today. After the flood, after Noah's sacrifice, God spoke to himself and he said, while the earth remained, remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. God made certain to let people know again, I made seasons in the beginning and just because the flood has given us a chance to start over anew, that does not mean that seasons will come to pass. Seasons are still happening. They're still in existence. Back in 1925, that's a long time ago, folks, 1925, a guy by the name of Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. I like that name. I don't think the Chisholm Trail had anything to do with him, but what a name, Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. He wrote a song. The song was to become a classic hymn of, of the faith, a hymn that has endured since then, is still a favorite. This church sings it, and it's the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Yeah, I hear the comments. Great is thy faithfulness. He wrote the, the lyrics, the words. William Miriam Runyon wrote the music to it. And those two men combine their talents and give to us a hymn that we still sing today. But in one of the verses, he, he is not quite as lofty in some of his other verses, and he brings it down to a natural explanation or declaration of God's faithfulness. And he brings it down to the level of nature. And, and this is what it is. 
summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Now, we could take it the time to sing the other verses and the chorus, but I want us to center on that verse just for a little bit. Joining with all of nature, with all of the seasons, the ebb and flow of seasons of life, that's the declaration to the faithfulness of God, of his mercy and of his love. Seasons are still with us. On the northern hemisphere, we have seasons like we're enjoying right now. And some of us, we fuss, oh, it's so cold today. But what do you expect in the middle of December, toward the end of December, in Missouri? Well, you could expect anything. <laughs> it's Missouri, you know. But, but this is the northern hemisphere. We're glad to have the Richardsons with us. But they are living most of their life in the southern hemisphere, and theirs is just the opposite. What was the weather when y'all came up here, although it's kind of a tropical place, but it was winter. I mean, it was summer in their climate, whatever they would declare as summer. And so whenever they come back to the States, and we're glad to have y'all, I know your children are glad to have you. They're acting better. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> It's always good. But when they come back here, they, they suffer shock in two, in two ways. They sh suffer a cultural shock because even if they've been gone a year, they come back, it's a culture shock. They have to get reacclimated to our ways of doing things. A little faster pace, I think she's posted before. But not only do they sh suffer cultural shock, but they also suffer a climate shock or a season shock. They leave Madagascar to come home this round. They leave there. They're, they're, they're wearing their summer clothes, not short pants, but their summer clothes, and they come up here and they have to get their coats on because seasons are definite, but seasons are different. And so the southern hemisphere has one system of seasons, but we have another system of seasons. They are reversed, but we enjoy them just the way they have. But seasons are definite. A farmer understands season. Brother Sponsler is here. He's been a wonderful farmer for many years of his life. He's had other people that farm for him, but he has to give timely instructions and directions for them when they were working together for that. But a farmer understands seasons. A farmer knows that you plant in the spring. A farmer knows that during the summer the crops grow. You have to water and weed, but the crops are growing. A farmer understands that in the fall season, it's the time to harvest and to gather in. And a farmer understands that in the wintertime, crops are not growing, except maybe some cabbages or something. Anybody like cabbage? Only when it's made into a cabbage roll, you know. But a farmer does not get angry and frustrated when in the middle of the winter he can't go out and pick fresh tomatoes. 
He doesn't get angry and upset when he can't go out and pick green beans in the middle of the winter because he understands the ebb and flow of seasons in his life and he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't kick against the order of seasons. Too often in our life, we kick against the long the battery went dead. <laughs> Forgive me. Testing, one, two. The farmer knows, the farmer understands. We would do well to learn what the farmer knows and not kick against it. Just like climate is boring without seasons, so is life boring without seasons. When you live in, in Hawaii, Anybody ever been to Hawaii? I've been to Hawaii. I see some hands. I've been to Hawaii. And when I was there, they told me it's like that all the time. Now, we happened to be there. It must have been at the monsoon season when we were there. Every day it rained. It didn't rain all day, but it rained every day. But some say that when you live in a place where the, where the seasons are not distinct, that life is more boring. But if you live in a time when snow is winter and red leaves are fall and green grass is spring and hot weather is summer, you can, you can give and take with the seasons and you enjoy it. And seasons do bring spice to life. Now, if you see this tower over here, I would just like for you to know this is rock and be sweet and smoky with a little kick chicken and rib rub. Now, this is not an advertisement for this, unless you've never bought any. Then it's an advertisement for this. If you buy this, I think this size is $10 a bottle, and the proceeds go to the building fund of the Lighthouse Pentecostal Church. So this is, this is a good thing to do. Testimony completed. Now, this, as well as lots of other seasonings, adds spice to your food. Your seasons of fall, winter, spring, and summer can add life to your, to your year, but seasonings can add life to your food. And that's a crucial thing. It's a, it's a good thing that we can have spice. There's one spice that we use in Louisiana. It's called slap your mama. It's a great spice, but my wife told the boys, don't try it. Don't try it. Hallelujah. Seasons flow together. In, in the growing season, one season depends on the other. You have to do the planting progress process in order in order for it to work. You have to plant and water and weed and feed and grow and harvest and then save the harvest in some fashion. And then through the winter, sharpen your tools and Put leaves on your, on your garden and work toward it. But seasons depend on even Even this Christmas season. Christmas season would mean nothing to us without an Easter season. Because those seasons tie together. I'd like to read a passage of Scripture. It's a familiar passage. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm reading verses 1 through 8. It's a familiar passage. It, it kind of has a little poetry to it. 
I, I like it. A, not total rhyme, but just a, a, a movement to it, a poetry to it. Listen how it flows. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to plant, to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now he goes on continuing the thought, but he doesn't continue on giving that set of contrast. But he's given us a set of contrast to explain to us that how there are seasons in life. There's a time to weep, but there's a time to rejoice. There's a time to build up. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to love. There's a time to hate. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to keep from embracing. There's a time and a seasons for all things. And while every individual goes through these seasons of life, you do not have to be a captive of those seasons. Just because life is going on a certain way does not mean you have to be a captive to those variances that come to you in life. You can change that. Just about a week ago, I read a, a piece of writing from Pastor Jacob Stump. He pastors in Granbury, Texas, has a growing church there, one of our pastors, and has a growing church there. And when I read it, I was working on this message on seasons. And when I read that, I thought, oh, he has said it so succinctly. And I would like to just read what Pastor Stump wrote just a few weeks ago. It's always difficult when people you loved and poured yourself into choose to walk away from you. Regardless of how much you love, how much love you gave, they rarely admit that love while rationalizing their current decisions. Rationalizations cause them to minimize and even deny the love you shared, which can be painful. You can be left confused and bewildered because the stories they share do not match your memories. The coffee, the holidays, the conversations... Suddenly, they paint those memories with the broad brush of contempt because you have become merely a bridge that has to be burned. It is hard not to take it personally. It's hard not to lash out and try to correct their narrative. But doing so is futile. Just because others have chosen a season to tear down, just because someone else has entered a season of scattering, just because your love feels like it's being plucked up by the roots, don't join their season. Choose your own season. Choose instead to remain in your season of building up. Build up the loving relationships that surround you. Choose a season of gathering. Gather together those friendships you've allowed to grow distant. Choose a season of planting. Plant new relationships. The world is filled with amazing people. 
including you. Stop focusing on those that tear down. Quit the scatterers. If they choose to pluck up your relationships, it's their field that is the lesser for it, not yours. Let them go. One day they'll tire of scattering and God will heal them, but you cannot speed up the process. Don't join the season of scatterers. You have a rich field all around you together from. So choose your season. Understand that we don't totally have the choice to choose our seasons in life, but we do have the choice of how we respond to those seasons that come to us in life. We know how to respond to them. We can learn a lesson from the former. He can choose to anxiously worry away the seemingly non-productive winter, or he can confidently sharpen his hoe, order his seed, and tune up his combine for the upcoming growing season. In the winter of your life, when it seems nothing is being productive, don't give up on God. Don't give up on God. One of the best examples is one that I find in the Bible. And I've gone to this particular character fairly recent in, in a message I preached here, but I want to go to him again because it's, it's so fitting for, for, for what I'm reaching for this morning. And I want to go to a man we've talked about before, a man of, called John Mark in the Bible. Now what I'm going to say from, about John Mark comes from various scriptures in the Bible. He is addressed several times in scripture. Different, different gospel writers address him. Uh, he mentions it himself in his gospel of Mark. Uh, and then there's some commentary, some historians who add some things to it. So, so what I'm going to tell his story right now, the way I'm going to tell it, is a conglomeration of those various scriptures plus some church history. And I, if I can remember, I'll try to tell you when it's church history and when it's a Bible presentation. Scholars have some discussion, differences on, on John Mark. Some will call him Marcus. One scripture addresses him as Marcus. But, but let us look at the life of John Mark. John Mark was a privileged young man. He came from a wealthy home. The reason we know that it was a wealthy home, it was a large home. The disciples of Jerusalem area, they would gather together in John Mark's home, the home of his mother and father. They would, they would come together there. It's very possible that the last suppers, the, supper the disciples shared with Jesus Christ was in the upper room of John Mark's family home. It was a large home. Obviously, they were a wealthy family because of that. And when we first are introduced to John Mark, and he tells it in the book of Mark, that the, the, the soldiers are ready to, to capture Jesus at the instruction of the Sanhedrin and others. They want to capture Jesus and bring him to trial. Very likely, they come to the house of John Mark that's where it was known that they shared that last supper together. Very possibly that night, they go to that house trying to capture Jesus. They, they raise the house up, those who are still there. Jesus and his disciples had already left. They'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. The Bible says, as Jesus was wont to go, he often went there for prayer. And so the soldiers come to the house, and in their 
waking up the house, they woke up the son, John Mark. We don't know for certain how old John Mark was at that time, but he was sleeping. This is Some of this is assumption. He was sleeping in the house and went with the rousing knocks and hollers of the soldiers. He jumps out of bed. He's aware now that they're looking for Jesus, and he knows where Jesus probably is because that's where Jesus went often. He grabbed his bedclothes, the, the bed sheet. He wrapped it around himself, and he ran toward the Garden of Gethsemane, that little, that little grove of olive trees that were there. He runs to that location, and he, when he gets there, though the soldiers had, had got there before him, and at that point they had already arrested Jesus, and he was too late to stop it if he could have or if he even wanted to. But then the soldiers were looking around, and they recognized John Mark, and they go to grab him to, bring, to, to hold him captive. And when they grab for this rich son of the, of the rich family, when they grab for him, he runs away, and all they get is just his clothes. And he says that he ran away naked when he, when he writes it in the book of Mark. He ran away naked. He had an opportunity to stand up for Jesus Christ, but instead he ran away. The sad part of him, the season of running away was not over just with one, one short experience. Instead, it became almost a habit of him for a while. He became the son who ran away. He ran away when he could have stood and, and defended. He wasn't the only, way, the only one that ran away, by the way. Other disciples ran away too that night. But he ran away naked. That was a, he was scorned by the Romans for his fear. and He was shamed by the Jews for running away naked. And to his own humiliation, it was not a public, it was not a private thing when he ran away, but it was a public thing. He suffered the shame and the understanding, his own guilt that I ran away when I should have stood. Later on, Peter was in prison, and he got out of prison. And the Bible says that he went to Mary's house. This was John Mark's mother. He went to the house of Mary. As he knew, the disciples were gathered there. So he went back to Mary's house after his time in the prison. Notice, at this point, they call it Mary's house. Fifteen years may have elapsed since that first incident. Now, fifteen years or so later, he go, Peter goes to Mary's house. At this point, there's not a father in the picture. There's not a man who is the man of the house. We don't know if, if Mark's father had died in those intervening years. We don't know if John Mark's father was not a believer and couldn't tolerate his wife's religion, and so he left the family. We don't know why at this point it was called Mary's house. But Peter went to Mary's house. It was, it was to a boy who was raised for a while without a father. There was not the guiding, directing hand on him to, to help him. Now that you've fallen, now that you've failed, now that you, you feel so humiliated, there wasn't a father to secure him and to hold him and bear him through this difficult time. But instead, he had an uncle. His uncle was named Joseph. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus, earthly father of Jesus. Was not that Joseph, another Joseph. But you will know him better by the name of Barnabas. 
Because when the people began to see the type of person that Joseph was, this Joseph, they decided to give him a new name. They gave him the name the Son of Consolation or one who encourages because that's what Barnabas did. And now in the absence of a father, it's highly probable that he became a mentor to his nephew. He was no longer able to call on a father, so instead there was a man who came into his life and began to mentor him, who began to train him, who, became, who, who changed his thinking about some things. After a while, after having spent some time with Barnabas and being retrained and, and improved a lot, the disciples, the apostles met together and they wanted to, to continue the work of God. And so they, they came together, several of them, and they prayed and they fasted and they sought God. And together, the, the Holy Ghost spoke to them and they chose Paul and Barnabas to make their very first missionary trip. So Paul and Barnabas began taking that first missionary trip, but Barnabas said, I want to take my nephew along with me. I've been mentoring him. I've been working with him. His dad is not in the picture. He was a deserter at one point, but I want to bring him here on our trip. And so Paul agreed to it. So they're on the trip, and nine verses later, he leaves them. He travels with them for a little, a little bit of time. He sees some miracles. He sees what happens to a particular sorcerer. But then, but then just a few verses, he leaves them before they've hardly even got, it, got started on their first missionary journey. He leaves them. And so they continue. After they finish that first missionary journey, they go back to Antioch. And then there's a, an invitation from the apostles at Jerusalem for this group of people to come back to Jerusalem for a discussion. They wanted to discuss whether the, the Jews, Jewish Christians or any Christian, all the Christians had to be circumcised or not. It was a Jewish thing they had to decide. And they, they discussed it out and came to a good conclusion. And, and so at the close of that meeting, Barnabas said, you know, Paul, we need to go and revisit all of those churches we went to on our first missionary journey. We need to go and revisit them, check to see how they're doing. And Paul thought that was a good idea. They thought they sought God. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. And then Barnabas made a fatal mistake. Oh, by the way, when they went on their first missionary journey, the Holy Ghost said unto them, Separate unto me Barnabas and, and Paul to do my work. The Holy Ghost said that. Now, they're getting ready to start their second missionary journey. And Barnabas, fatal mistake, he said, Let's, I want to take my nephew Mark with me this time again. And Paul said, no. Paul was not the son of encouragement. If you read much about Paul, he was a little harsher side. He was not the son of consolation or an encourager. He says, no way. That guy left us last time. He ran, and I don't want anything to do with him. And, and the contention got pretty hard. And finally they realized we cannot come to an agreement on this. So they came to a separation of the ways. And so Paul chose a man by the name of Silas and he began his second missionary journey. But Barnabas took Saul and went back, or took, took Mark, John Mark, and went back to Crete where he lived and, and mentored and trained and worked with Mark for a while longer. The disciples, the apostles... They approved what Paul did. They said, in, in assumption perhaps, my assumption, that they said, 
that Paul was right. Barnabas was biased by family connection. He wanted to bring that, that nephew of his along with him on the journey. He was biased by a family connection. And so Paul was right, and they put their mark of approval on Paul. And he went and did the work of God. Barnabas is never mentioned again in Scripture except as a memory. Because he was saddled with a loser. He was saddled with someone who ran away. Twice now, he's run away. And the first time, we understand his fear of the Roman soldiers. The second time, we don't really know why he ran away. If he wanted to go back home, if it was too hard, if what happened with, with Elamus the sorcerer, if that was too, too rough and, and raw for him to deal with. But for some reason, he left and went back home. And Paul was not going to be saddled with a loser. And Barnabas was saddled with a loser. And never again in scriptures he mentioned, except as a memory. So as, John, as Paul moved on in his ministry, all of the church understood that Paul took the right road and, and Barnabas took a, a bad road because he linked up with a loser. Everybody knew that the Spirit had said, the Holy Ghost had said, separate me, Saul and, or Paul and Barnabas to do these works. But instead, John Mark separated the team that the Holy Ghost put together. And so now they're a divided team and, and Barnabas is saddled with a loser. Barnabas kept working on the loser. He kept mentoring him. He kept helping him to understand the way of the Lord. He tried to help him to learn how to be Christ-like instead of being self-centered and, and trying to have everything his way, being fearful. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, though, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Colossae. He's a prisoner at this point. Probably has his own home that he's a prisoner in. But he writes to the church at Colossae. And in his writing to the church of Colossae, he mentioned, I think it was Aristarchus. He mentioned Aristarchus was with him. And then he says, John Mark's with me also. And then he said, if, if John Mark, he may call him Marcus at that point, but, but if, if John Mark comes to your church where you are, to your city, receive him. Receive him. He said this in Colossians, a little while after he had rejected him earlier. And then at some point he, he left and was doing his other ministry. Uh, John, Mark, John Mark was. And Barnabas worked on him some more. Worked on him some more. And then after a while of working on him, he came across Peter. Simon Peter. And Peter saw something in him, thanks to Barnabas. And Peter took him under his wings. In 1 Peter 5, verse 13, Peter says that John Mark, or Marcus, is my son in the gospel. There was something about what Peter began putting into John Mark. He lived with Peter for a while. They ministered together for several years. 
What John Mark knew about Jesus' ministry and birth and life, he learned it through the Apostle Paul. He was really too young to spend time with Jesus when Jesus was alive. But now, through the Peter, I mean, now that he spent time with Peter, he understands what, what it meant to walk with Jesus Christ. It caused him to live a little no, more noble, a live a little more purposeful, because he was following something that he had never followed before. He had been given the image of life with Jesus Christ. Paul was not able to give that to him. But Peter was able to give him that image. And as Peter gave that to him, Later, John Mark was valued by the Apostle Paul. At the close of Paul's life, just a very few months before his final end, before his death, he was in prison again, but it wasn't a hired house that he was living in now. It wasn't a rented place where he could have guests. But now he's, he's in a prison, but there's a hole in the ground, and he is thrown into that pit with all of the slime and filth that's there. That's where he's spending his last days. And when he writes his final letter, which is 2 Timothy, his final letter, and when he gets to the final chapter of his final letter, what is on Paul's mind but a John Mark? And he tells them, send John Mark to me. He is valuable to me at this point in my ministry. I need him. It wasn't just his strength that he needed, but he needed the, the manliness that had come over John Mark. No longer was he one who ran from problems. Now, though, he is valuable to the Apostle Paul, and Paul invites him to come to me, to come to him, because he is valuable to me at this point. What a change. What a change. Now let me talk just a little bit what church historians say eventually happened to John Mark. John Mark eventually became the bishop of the church at Alexandria. Quite a responsibility. Quite a growing church. A church that was growing by, by Christ's spirit. It was, it was an amazing group of people. The church of Alexandria. But because the church was doing some wonderful things and God was working in their midst, they came under persecution. The persecution came. And John Mark was martyred in Alexandria. The people wanting to honor John Mark had this description of him. This time, he didn't run. This time, he didn't run. I'm preaching intentional this morning. There are people here today who have ran. Your season got a little tough. and In dog language, you tucked your tail and run. Things didn't go quite the way you wanted them to. Sister Morgan, you said it well. Sometimes life throws us curves. But you didn't respond to those in that, in that conquering way. Instead, you yielded and you gave in to what life threw to you or what the devil brought to you. Instead of understanding the promises of God, all you could see was your situations in your life and in your self-centeredness. 
You saw your dilemmas instead of seeing God's power. I'm talking to you today. And I really think the Word of God is talking to you. This time, he did not run. Even sports has seasons. There's a hunting season. With deer season, there's a bow season. There's a gun season. There's a black powder season. Is there any more that I've left out? There's a doe season. There's a season when you can only get them with horns. You are Antlers. They're not called horns. They're called antlers. There's seasons for all of that. There's fishing season. Sometimes you can catch and release. Sometimes if they're the right size, you can keep them and eat them. There's a baseball season. There's a football season. There's a hockey season. All of the sports have a season. And some of those seasons are losers. I'm not talking about any local team. (laughs) Don't want to bring up that kind of stuff. But the question I ask today is, what should you do when you have a losing season? And I'm not just addressing football or baseball or anything like that. But what do you, what should you do when you have a losing season? How do you rise again when the seasons of life have brought you low? How can you be profitable when you've experienced seasons of loss? What can you do? And I'll give you a few tips. First of all, you must know that you've been destined by God to succeed. You've been born again to win. There's no use walking with a poverty mentality when everything that the Father has is at your disposal. You're destined by God to win. The second thing, you have to know your folly. Whatever it was, your season, uh, whatever the season was, and in that season you failed to come out victorious, think it through, pray about it. What was my folly? I don't want to use the word stupidity or ignorance. I choose to use the word folly. What was my folly that caused me not to get up again when I was knocked down? What was my trouble? What was my folly that caused that to happen? Think about it. Pray about it. And the third thing is, you have to submit to more capable people. This past service, the pastor talked about the five-fold ministry. When you have a season and you fail... You need a prophet and an apostle and a pastor and a teacher. And I left one out. Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. You need somebody who is better than you at that season in your life. I'm not saying they're way up here as as on a God platform. I'm just saying that in that season of your life, they are better than you. And you need to hear that voice. Just as a football team, they need to go back and hear the coach again. They need to hear that batting trainer train them some more. Who, what, who was the coach that held the football up? Says, says, 
This is a football. He took it back to the, that of a basic thing. And sometimes in our seasons of loss, we need to go back to the basics. But we need a coach, a trainer, someone who can discipline us. Someone who is tough enough to tell us something that may seemingly hurt us. But if we will listen and grow, it will bring us to a winning season of our life. I believe it can happen. And the last one is, you've got to face the things you've damaged and those to whom you lost. You've got to face them. In order for you to take back that territory, you've got to stay in the territory. You can't run and go off somewhere else and expect to, to win back that territory. You can only win back that territory by fighting in that territory. We're not getting back into the sinfulness of that territory. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But in that territory that I lost, when I lost good ground, I'm going to stand back in that ground, and by the grace of God, I'm going to be a winner. And brand Because, yet again, I shall not run. When they said of him, now he did not run. What a testimony. What a testimony to you. What an epitaph. On your tombstone, he did not run. What a difference it would make in our life. God will help me reclaim that lost ground. God will help me be victorious and rebuild the things that the devil's torn down. In seasons of life, when some are tearing down, by the grace of God, I can build up. In a season of life, when some are hating, I can love again. Hallelujah. Theodore Roosevelt gave a famous speech in 1899. That was two centuries ago, folks. You don't realize what year you're in. That's two centuries ago. 1899. He was speaking to a, a club, the Hamilton Club, athletic club, and he was speaking to them. It was called the Strenuous Life was his speech. But this is a portion of it. For better is it to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer too much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. I'm encouraging you today, get out of that gray twilight of giving in, of being mediocre, of yielding to everything that comes your way. But instead, as we're going into 2019, a brand new era of time, a time we've never lived in before, I encourage me, I encourage you, take a stand. Take back what the devil's stolen from you. Refuse to allow the seasons of your life to be the dominating factor in your life. And instead, stand up on the strength of Jesus Christ. Stand on the authority of His Word. Stand by the presence of the name of Jesus Christ. And declare victory that comes only through Jesus Christ. Seasons bring spice to life. But to those who live in that great, dismal world of mediocrity, it's not very fun. And you can stay there if you want. It's a comfortable area, although it's not enjoyable. Or 
You can kick against some of those seasons that come in your, your way, and you can make some choices that will make a difference. You don't need to stay down when God wants you to rise. You don't have to stay sad when God wants to bring joy to your heart. Those seasons of life, everyone I read, there's a season for that and a season for that. But on some level, we can choose how to react to those seasons. We can live above it. Because the gift of God to me is seasons. Those seasons in my life are not a curse unless I let them win. But I'm not going to let them win by God's grace. I'm an overcomer. Even though I'm knocked down, I'm getting up again. Seven times if it takes it. God's my victory. God's my victory. This is a Sunday morning before Christmas, and I offer you seasons greetings, but it's in the form of this sermon. Don't let seasons get you down. Instead, rise above them. It's, it's a very few days until the brand new year. And I'm telling you, don't let the seasons bring you down. Instead, be a, a child of God, a man of God, a woman of God, and stand for right. And when you've done all you can do, just sit down and take it easy. No, that's not what the Scripture said. When you've done all you can do, stand. Just stand square-footed on the promises of God and watch Him come through for you every time. That's what He does. Shall we stand today?